Uh, this semester on Wednesdays, in this kind of format, in this meeting, we're going to be looking through the first half of Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Rome. In, in the Bible, that's called the Book of Romans, descriptively. And um, I would love to be able to do the whole book. It, there's just no way. It's too jam-packed. And even this semester, at times it's going to feel like we've got the fire hydrant in front of us, and it's just going to be a lot to take in. But we're going to do our best because... Um, And and really my heart through wanting to study the book of Romans is is pretty simple. It's that when when we look at the world, when when we look even just at a microcosm of the last couple of months in our country and beyond, we can readily observe and see that we live in in a brutal world. There's lots of beauties to it, but we live in a in a brutal world that is that is fracturing all the time. It's fracturing along racial lines. It's fracturing along political lines and has been for a while. It's fracturing along religious lines, social lines, socioeconomic lines. I mean, any kind of lines that could potentially uh, be divisive, it's like we're seeing it in 3D right now. It's just the fracturing is everywhere around us. And in this book... The Apostle Paul is going to present a message that he's calling the gospel. We're we're going to unpack that, actually, uh, not just today, but over the next several weeks. He's he's presenting this message that that Christians and the church have, since the Bible is written, called the gospel, which is claiming to do this. It's claiming that, yes, it's acknowledging that the world is fractured. It's It's deeply broken. In some ways, more broken than you and I even know. And that that brokenness and that fracturing is deep and it's powerful and it's real. And it's been going on for a long time. And the gospel message of the Bible is saying that it is deep and powerful enough to enter into that brokenness and to bring real healing and change. And so at RUF, we are going to unpack what that message is and how exactly that affects our life. And what Paul's going to say and suggest in this book is that through being united vertically with God, in a a cosmic restorative relationship with God, through that relationship, you can actually be healed at a deep level and begin to move out into the world and be healed in very real and substantial ways with people around you. So that's the message here in the the book of Romans. Um, If you'll let me, I'm going to pray for us real quick, then we're going to read these verses. We'll chat about them for a few minutes, and then uh, then go on. Let me pray for us. Father, again, we come to you, and we uh, we pray that you would be at work. Um, Lord, in a room this size with this many people, um, the stories are, are limitless. And only you know them all, and you know exactly what we need tonight. And so we pray that you would transcend our our differences and you would speak the good news to us through me, a a faulty, broken vessel. Be with us now, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look in your your bulletin there, I'm going to have it on the screen as well. This is the first 16 verses of this letter. To the church in Rome. It says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David, according to the flesh, 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's one sentence. Pause. To all those who are in, uh, who are loved, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you, uh, grace to you, and grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed by faith for faith, for as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word. When I was uh, beginning my freshman year at the uh, scholastic powerhouse down the street called the University of Oklahoma, um, I walked in to my freshman English class, and I kind of, if you know me, this is not going to surprise you, I kind of thought OU was lucky to have me. Uh, I was pretty arrogant. If you think I'm arrogant now, you should have seen me then. Um, But I was there, and I was ready to dominate. And the way that I dominated English classes was uh, when it was paper time, I would uh, pick a topic that my teacher didn't know anything about, and I would pile up information on him or her and just try to, like, do that game. I graduated from a public high school, and that game worked. And so uh, the the second day of class would have been, like, today, Wednesday, the teacher assigned a persuasive argument. And so as an 18-year-old with a 60-year-old woman as my teacher, I had just the topic. I was going to write about why Kobe Bryant, who that was his rookie year in the NBA, why he was getting paid too much money. Because he went straight from high school to the NBA, didn't go to college, didn't get a degree, yada, yada, yada. And my whole argument was based on this premise. But you have uh, men and women who go to college and they graduate and they go do very noble professions like teaching. And if you're a teacher in Oklahoma, you make $27 a year. And uh, so my whole premise of my paper was these people are underpaid, he's overpaid, and I'm going to persuade you of that. Well, uh, about a week later, whenever I get my paper back, I assure you there has never been more red ink on a paper in history. My teacher was the biggest Kobe Bryant fan ever, ever. She knew everything about him. She knew all of his stat lines. She knew his family history. And she obliterated me on the back page of that. And that was hard enough. But the the hardest thing about getting that paper back was right there, smack dab in the middle of the first page, these three words. No thesis statement. And that was really humbling. 
But it's hard to persuade someone of anything if you don't know what you're talking about and you're not giving them direction on where you're going. Well, in this book of Romans, the two verses right there at the end, verses 16 and 17, they are the Apostle Paul's thesis statement for this whole book. And though there is a lot we could look at in those first 15 verses, we're just going to jump down on these two verses and unpack his thesis statement uh, so that um, we can do that quickly. And those of you who just came for pizza, we can let you be and do your thing. So let's look at four things in those two verses. The first thing I want us to just ask very plainly and simply, like a good thesis statement does, is what is the gospel? What is the gospel? So look down right there in verse 16. Paul says, the gospel, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. It's, just, it's a very simple statement that he makes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. So question number one, what is the gospel? It is the power of God. Notice that the Apostle Paul doesn't say it's a powerful message from God, though it it is that in, in a way. But he's saying that the gospel is God's power. So what does that mean? The gospel message says this, that... That mankind was created by God to be in a love and trust relationship with him. Mankind from the beginning rebelled against God and said, I don't want you to be God. I don't want to have to do what you want me to do. I want to do what I want to do. And that very thing resonates in our own hearts today. And so that separation of man saying, I don't want you to be the God figure over my life, that caused a chasm, a separation. And that separation was so massive that there's no way that man could do anything to bridge it. We couldn't earn that relationship back. We couldn't fix it ourselves. And so God, out of his sheer mercy and grace, says, I'm going to do something about it to restore the relationship. And so thousands of years later, he sends his son Jesus, God in the flesh, to redeem or to buy back the sinful, rebellious humanity so that we can be back in relationship with him. Jesus then takes the punishment that mankind deserved for his rebellion. Jesus takes that on the cross. God distances himself from Jesus so that he can draw near to us. Jesus dies for our sin. Three days later, he is raised from the dead to show God's power that even death does not have the final word. And by Jesus' resurrection, both the things you fear that separate you from God the most... That is put to death, and Jesus' new life through the resurrection becomes your new life. That's the message of the gospel. And Paul's saying that is power. It's not powerful. He's saying that is the power of God. That the way that God is demonstrating his power in the world is not through some, uh, some huge army that is going out and blitzkrieging people and, and kicking butt and taking names in a physical way right now. That's not how God's power is going forth. It's going forth when when people of power lay down their power and come low and serve others. It's going forth when when wealthy people take their wealth and use that to, to give to the poor and to raise others up. That God's power is going forth when people in, in positions of importance lay aside that importance for the sake of those who are low and need help. It's when people in prestigious positions will look at the things that are broken in the world and say, that's messed up. And here's how I'm entering into fix it. It's it's a subversive power. 
It's not power like we tend to think of power. It's an end-around game that God is doing. The gospel is the power of God. Listen to how this one man, uh, Richard Hayes, writes about it. He says, The gospel is not merely a moral or philosophical teaching that hearers may accept or reject as they choose. It is rather the all-encompassing way through which God is working his purpose out in the world. What's he saying? He's saying that the gospel isn't and can't be reduced to some set of morals or some list of do this or don't do this or vote this way, don't vote that way. The gospel is not that, nor is it just an intellectual exercise in a sense. The gospel is not just philosophy. Although it certainly has been talked about philosophically for thousands of years, it's not just those things. It's something altogether different. It is God's end game, His powerful, all-encompassing way that He is changing the world. And He is changing the world. We may look at our country and kind of bemoan its moral compass or, or whatever you want to call it, its secularization or whatever we think is happening. But friends, God is not losing this battle. He, he is at work throughout the world and people are coming to him and lives are being changed and communities are being healed through the power of God in the gospel. That's all I'm going to say about this. There's so much more we could say, but we're going to do that for the next 12 weeks. So, why do we need the gospel? What is the gospel? It's the power of God. Why do we need that power? Why do we need that gospel? He says again in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. So, the, the power is there because there is salvation to be had. And that word in Greek just means deliverance. So, what needs to be saved or delivered? Yes. Everything. Not just everyone, everything. In fact, in the 8th chapter of this book, Paul's going to talk about how the creation itself is in bondage. So, everything needs to be delivered. That means that everything is messed up. Everything is messed up in some way. And Paul's going to spend three chapters from Romans 1 through 3 building this case in full. And he mounts up, I'm I'm giving you fair warning, he mounts up a pile of bad news. So welcome back to RUF next week. For three weeks, I mean, it's just, it's bad news, y'all. But he's got to build that that hill of bad news because he's going to plant a flag of good news on top of it and say, I've conquered that. So the bad news is there, but the good news is coming. And here's the bad news. That it's not just that the fracturing is happening out there in the world. It's not just that it's out there. It's definitely out there. But he says it's in here, too. That it's not just the world is messed up. He's, He's saying, and the Bible makes the case, that we are messed up. That I have fractured life. I have a fractured life. That you have a fractured heart and life. The problem's not just out there, it's in here. Let me see if I can convince you of this real quick. Think about something as simple as, not as simple, but as, as easy to recognize as poverty. Right? Poverty is it's a worldwide issue. It's everywhere, and it's awful. And it's certainly worse in some places than others. Right? So we can universally acknowledge that poverty is no good. It's an out there thing. But y'all, my indifference... 
And your indifference to poverty makes it worse. What about this? What about sexual exploitation? We rightly hate, and you may even campaign against sex trafficking in the uh, illegal sex trade and the juvenile sex trade and all of this stuff. It certainly is an issue out there, yes. But the casual way that we give either tacit or outright approval to porn and the porn industry and everything related to that means that we're making it worse. What about... What about racism? That's been a big one um, as of recent, rightly so. Um, it's awful, and we're seeing, we're seeing evidence of this in our culture in a way that I think many would have wished that it would have gone away by now. But there's been a heightened reality that, ooh, that, that's just been sleeping. But it is very much still there. So, right, we acknowledge racism is bad. We hate what's happened in Baton Rouge and Minnesota and Dallas and all the places that it's happened in the last few months and beyond that the last few years and for a long time. But when I hear that joke and I don't step in to shut it down, or when you're part of that circle of people and they make that offhanded comment that really is filled with racist intentions or racial thoughts, and we don't counteract that and say, hey, look, That's not cool. You can't say stuff like that. When we just implicitly give in to it, we are adding to the problem. So the Bible calls this sin. All the fracturing, all the brokenness out there and in here is sin. And it's ugly. And we need the gospel because sin is an ever-present reality in our world. Thirdly, how does the gospel work? So it's the power of God for salvation. How does it work? Verse 17, look right there uh, in in your bulletin. It says, for in it, and the it there is the gospel, for in it the the righteousness of God is revealed by faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So how how does this gospel work? How do you and I access this power of God to enact change in us so that we can be agents of change for the good in the world? How does this happen? By faith. By faith. You have to believe in what God has done in time, space, and history through the person and work of Jesus Christ to redeem a fallen humanity. You have to believe that. It's by faith. Now, I realize that in saying that phrase, by faith, some of your minds kind of flip on and you say something like this. Oh, great. There goes another preacher who's saying that I just have to shelf my intellectual abilities and kind of put my mind over here on the shelf and just, you know, and just believe, like ignore everything I've learned or everything that seems to be being proved out there in the world. And, you know, just like separate that and come over here and believe. Yes and no. Here's what I mean. I am not saying, I am not saying that you have to shelf your intellectualism. But Christianity at its core is a religion that involves supernaturalism as a foundational belief. And that, that foundational belief thing is everything. It's a baseline belief. You cannot prove or disprove foundational beliefs. They just are. 
And so you, if you don't believe in supernaturalism, you construct a worldview that tries to deal with everything based on things that can be observed and tested and all that stuff. And those things are fine. The scientific, we're pro the scientific method. But you have to acknowledge that if I fundamentally say those things can't exist, then Christianity will never make sense in that paradigm and worldview. Because it is a, it is a religion that at its core has a man who was dead and was raised to life. That's supernatural. But as a foundational belief, if you're willing to accept that, look, there are just things in the world which, in humility, I need to at least say that I might not be able to make sense of that in my nice, tidy, neat little intellectual categories. And some of y'all have some really big intellectual categories. Not at OU, but yes, at TU. So I'm not saying no to intellectualism. It's not anti-intellectualism. It is supernaturalism, and those are different. Those are different. Here's what Paul is saying when he's saying by faith. He's saying it's by faith because it can't be any other way. It cannot be by works because you can't do enough good things to bridge that gap. You cannot earn your way back into God's good favor. That relationship is so severed that you'll never do it on your own. So the only way to be restored right there is by believing that Jesus has done it for you. It's by faith. And and Paul, look at that little phrase there at the end of verse 17. It says, for the righteous shall shall live by faith. That little phrase, Paul is actually quoting from uh, a book in the Old Testament called Habakkuk, which you probably have never read, and it may take you about 30 minutes to find because it's two pages. But, But the prophet Habakkuk was having this conversation with God where essentially this is happening. The nation of Israel, kind of God's special people in the Old Testament, they had rebelled against him wholesale for hundreds of years. And God said, hey, if you rebel against me and you don't repent and turn around, I'm going to punish you and I'm going to use these other nations to do that. Well, that was happening. The nation of Babylon was coming and they were invading Israel and then Judah in specific. And Habakkuk saying this in, in the book of Habakkuk. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. He's saying, okay, God, I get it. We've done, we've done wrong. We didn't do what you wanted us to do. We've rebelled. I get it. But Babylon? Are you, are you kidding? Have you seen what they do to their children? They, they sacrifice their children to try to get it to rain. Babylon, God, they're, they're the worst people out there. You're going to use them to judge us, your holy people? And God's answer to Habakkuk decimates him. Because this is what God says, and I'm paraphrasing now Habakkuk 2. He comes and says, yeah, Habby, um, I, I have seen what's going on there. I've seen everything that Babylon's done, but I've seen everything you've done too. And for you to suppose that you have some kind of standing with me because of your pedigree is false. The only thing that's going to make you righteous in my eyes, that's going to give you right standing before me, is if you trust me. And trusting me involves you saying, I'm sorry and I need you. So he looks at Habakkuk and says, Habakkuk, the righteous will not live by their name and by their pedigree. The righteous will live by faith. And so... That's both terrifying and good news for you tonight. Because what that means at the same time is that your family background doesn't matter. And for some of you, you're like, yes! (laughs) Because you have hard family backgrounds. 
And for some of you, you've been riding on your family's kind of religiosity and spirituality for a long time. And you have, to have, you have to hear the Apostle Paul saying, look, the way you get this power of God in you to enact change in your life and the world is by faith. You cannot claim any other thing to get that in you. So the gospel happens by faith. Lastly here, who's it for? Who's it for? So if, if receiving the gospel is something totally apart from our actions, whether good or bad, who gets to do that? The implications of that very statement are huge. If it's not by good works, if it's not by your morality or by your spiritual resume or by the thing that got you into TU, then the implications of that are huge. Look at verse 16 again. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. And he goes on to say, to the Jew first and to the Greek. And when he says that, he's holding his arms out like this and saying, from everyone all the way on that end, the Jews thought themselves to be super righteous, and they thought the Greeks to be the most terrible, unholy people ever. He's saying, for the Jews, the Greeks, everyone who believes gets access to this God and his power. Listen to how one pastor put this. What an exhilarating word that is for those of us in the room who feel that there is something about us that rules us out. It's coming up behind you. What an exhilarating word to those of us in the room who feel that there is something about us that rules us out. Wrong family, wrong background, wrong education, wrong language, wrong race, wrong culture, wrong sexual preference, wrong moral track record. Then to hear the word, everyone who believes, everyone, one thing can rule you out, and that is unbelief, not trusting Jesus, but nothing else has to. The good news that Christ died for our sins and that he rose from the dead to open eternal life, and that that salvation is by grace through faith, all that is for everyone who believes. Look. I realize, I I really do, I realize that not all of you in here know what to do with your beliefs. You don't know what you believe, maybe. You may come in here with more doubt and confusion than belief at all. And that's fine. We can talk about that later. I, I I really don't want to focus on that right now. I want you to focus on the first part of that. Everyone. You need to know that when you come here... Not just here, but as you live, that there is nothing about your life that from the, from the get-go, on the front end, rules you out from an openness to the gospel. You have not out God's power and His grace, I promise you. You have not so, so performed that you don't need God's grace, I promise you. The gospel message is utterly humbling to all of us. Because for those who think they've got it together, it brings you low because you have to admit that you don't. And for those who think that you've been too far gone and you've done too much and you've binged on porn too many times or you've gone in the bathroom and done that thing too many times, like whatever it is that you're thinking, surely that's the thing that disqualifies me. Paul is saying, no, it's not. It's for everyone who believes. Let me close with this story. 
Uh, this summer I was um, at some staff training with RUF in Atlanta, and this guy was coming, uh, and he was telling us a story about when he was younger. He's maybe 55 or so now. And when he was younger, and therefore when his children were younger, he was walking upstairs in his house one night toward, toward bedtime, and he walked past his daughter's room. And he heard his daughter in there, she was crying, and not just a little bit, she was really crying. And so he, he knocked, and he said, hey honey, can I come in, are you okay? And she said, yeah, you can come in. And so through her tears, um, you know, he asked her, what's going on? And she said, daddy, I'm, I'm so sad. And he said, okay, um, you know, what's happening? Did did something happen at school, or, or, or why are you sad? And she said, I don't know, Daddy. I'm just sad. And he said, well, how long have you been sad? And she said, I don't know, a long time. He said, honey, I'm so sorry. And he got up, and he walked out. And he walked down to the kitchen, and he got two cups. He got a styrofoam cup and a glass cup, and he walked back up the stairs into her room. And he got right up next to her on the bed, and he set the glass cup down, and he grabbed the styrofoam cup, and he reached back, and he threw it as hard as he could at the wall. And it just kind of went about three feet and then floated to the ground like a styrofoam cup would do. And then he turned around and reached down the bed, and he got that glass cup. And he reared back like this and was going into the motion of throwing it into the wall. And his daughter said, no, Daddy, stop, stop, stop. And he said, what, why? And she said, because it's going to break. He said, but I, I thought you told me it was a cup. She said, it is, Dad, but that one's glass. And he sat down next to her and he said this. Honey, you need to understand that in this world, some people are cups and some people are glass. Some people are styrofoam, some people are glass. And you, your daddy is made of glass, he said. I'm sad also. I don't know why. I don't always know why I'm sad, but I'm a sad person. And it sounds like maybe you're made of glass too. Your mommy's made of styrofoam and I don't understand her. He said, it's okay, honey. Styrofoam's not bad, it's just different. Glass isn't bad, it's just different. Some of you in here tonight are styrofoam. And you wouldn't know a glass day if you fell through a skylight into a china shop. You would think it was fun. You would find something, some way to spin that positively, and it would be awesome and amazing. And some of you are glasses. And you can't find a, a padded wall to save your life. And the way that you experience this world is a series upon series of difficult and hard things. And wherever you are in that illustration or in any of the things we've given, whether styrofoam or glass or white or black or brown or athletic or apathetic or put together or a hot mess, or whatever and whatever. You have to know that the gospel is for you. Paul says it's for everyone. Everyone. So that includes you. So we hope that you'll come back.
This was just kind of an introduction to this book and to this semester. But all semester, we're going to flesh out this message of the gospel being good news for you. So we hope and pray you'll come back. Let me pray for us as Tally and Jared come up to give us some announcements. God, we pray that you would convince us that that we aren't so good that we don't need you, nor are we so bad that we can't have you. Would you begin to open our hearts to that and apply that to our lives wherever we are? We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.